I do have a handout for you. If you're missing one, uh, you can find it on the music stand there at the back of the class. Uh, the handout is a summary of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13. And across the top, I wrote what I wrote here on the whiteboard, that God causes us to grow and grow, is another way of saying what sanctification is. And then on the top of the page, you'll see in bold uh, a summary statement of the whole lesson today. We are so thankful that God continues to make us more like his son. I hear a little bit of squealing. I wonder if I should move to a different location. Is it feedback coming from me being under the speaker? What if I move back just a little? I'll move the board back. I'm somewhat mobile, so I can move myself back. Maybe that'll solve the squeaking. Or maybe it's a mouse. All right, so uh, we're thankful that God continues to make us more like his son. So if you're looking for the words of the Westminster Confession, chapter 13, you'll uh, be able to use the hymnal, and it's page 856 in the Trinity hymnal. Or if you've downloaded the app, you're welcome to use your phone or a pad and look it up on the app, or it's on the opc.org website, and it's all over the internet. So... Chapter 13, section, it, you notice that this chapter is short. It's, it's one of the shorter chapters uh, of uh, the divines. Um, I use the word divines, and I, by that I mean the pastors of the Westminster Confession Assembly, 1643 to 1647. Um, you know how you say reverend, like the, the Reverend Smith? That's our modern way of describing the, the position of those who serve God. So in older days, they used the word divines as well. It shouldn't throw us off, but somehow it does, I think, in modern English minds. Anyway, so sometimes I'll slip and I'll say the divines, and I don't mean anything off by that. But the, the, the shortness of this chapter shows the ability of the authors to state very large areas of biblical theology in an extraordinarily brief way. There is so much here. We're going to spend this whole class talking about the topic of sanctification and and, and digging in. So start by reading the first section. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion or control of the whole body of sin is destroyed. And the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, which means killed off. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And quickened means enlivened, um, vivified, uh, brought, brought to life, uh, given more energy or life. Uh, these old words, right? Because this... This, the King James Bible is written in 1611, and these words were written in 1640s. So it sounds King James to us. So words like quicken sometimes show up in there. All right, so this first um, section we could summarize by saying it's describing the radical nature of sanctification. Uh, radical being how much it reaches to the base, to the core. It is talking about how deep, how pervasive um, sanctification is. And it is uh, 
an, a first attempt at a definition of sanctification. So I think what I'll do is write up, even though I wrote this as kind of a mini definition of sanctification, I'm going to try our blue marker. The green was too light. See if the blue goes. And um, let me ask you first to think, what would be your definition of sanctification? If you're thinking through, and, and I've tried to give you the category if the, if the word is foreign to you, but God causes us to grow and grow. How would you say it? What, I'll give you a hint of why I'm asking that. I want you to turn your brain on. Who is it that causes you to grow? Is it God? Is it you? Is it some combo thereof? Thinking that question through is really going to be core and helpful for our work today. So if I were to put a definition of sanctification on the board, which I'm planning to do, I would write work of God's grace by which, does that sound King James-ish, by which, we are renewed in, oops, I can't write and talk at the same time. And enabled to die to sin. I know, don't turn your back to the class. Um, And live to righteousness. I can barely lean down like that. During my um, quarantine time, I walked 10 miles a day. I would walk 5 miles in the morning when the sun got up, and then before the sun sets at like 4.30. So I had to start like a little after 3 and walk another 5 miles. But apparently that doesn't keep you fit. Because when I go back to my fitness classes at the gym, I've been sore since Thursday morning. And I can barely like, go down like that to right lower. Anyway, enough about my foibles. But um, first I want to have you turn to Romans 8.13 and see where some of this language is coming from. If I had one core verse today, this would be at Romans 8.13. So we'll start and end with that. Romans 8.13. If you live according to the flesh you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's a a core verse about sanctification. And so if I were to define sanctification, which I just did in all these blue letters, it's the work of God's grace by which we are renewed in the image of God and enabled to die to sin and live to righteousness. So there's two things that we're enabled to do. One is to die to sin and the others to live in righteousness. And these follow after 
what God's grace is doing in us. God is working continuously, his work, ongoing, in an ongoing way to renew us in the image of God. So when, when you uh, have that overarching idea, and then we turn to our first section here, we see that they're following the previous chapters about effectual calling and regeneration and putting us into the category now of sanctification and calling it further sanctified. Isn't that fascinating? Because what they're referring back to prior to that is um, regeneration, or we could call it, I'm giving up on the blue marker also, Um, we could call it a new birth. Regeneration. Generate, right, to give life. Regeneration, to give life again to something that's died. So new birth is those of us who've died in Adam are given a new birth. And so to say that we are further sanctified refers back to regeneration. So there's a sense in which, I hope this doesn't confuse you, but I think it's in the minds of the authors, so we need to understand what they're saying and why they're saying it. In their minds... The reason they use the phrase further sanctified is because being given a new birth is in some way a sanctification. If sanctification is being made holy, um, something is sacred or sanct- sanctimonious, right? Sanct, the word sanct is, refers to holiness. If we're being made holy, if we were evil and now we're being made holy, to be regenerated, to be given a new birth, or be converted in the first place, goes from a dark person to a light person, goes from a dead person to an alive person, goes from an evil person to a godly person, right? So the new birth is in some aspect an initial sanctification. And I hope this will become more clear as we get to um, later what I want to do is clarify the difference between justification and sanctification. It's on the bottom of your page. And within sanctification, we have both definitive and progressive. Don't worry, I know you're all conservatives, and I put the word progressive up here. But the word progressive merely means in an ongoing manner, right, that the sanctification has an initial action and then an ongoing action. So don't be thrown off by the word progressive or us talking about progressive sanctification because it is the correct theological terminology. So um, the idea of further sanctification gives light to us to think about how um, sanctification is tied to all the other doctrines that they've studied. That's why they, okay, they list first effectually called, that is effectual or effective, that it works. When God calls, he gets his man or woman, that God was calling someone. And then once God calls someone, they will automatically receive the new birth. They can't decline it. He's calling them. He's bringing them to life. He's giving them a new birth. So the persons who are called by God, the persons who are given a new birth by God, the persons who are given a new heart and a new spirit created in them, language borrowed from Ezekiel 36, are further sanctified. 
So if God's going to do all those previous things, he's going to call someone. He's going to regenerate them, give them the new birth. He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. Is he just going to stop at that point and say you're on your own? Of course not. So there is this guarantee that he's going to continue to be at work to sanctify us, those of us who've already been converted, those of us who are called by God, regenerated by God, given a new birth, given a new spirit, are also going to be projects that God continues to work on. So is that, is that hopeful? Is that clear? Uh, effectual calling leads to regeneration as cause and effect, and the root of sanctification is already present in, in these previous chapters, in the theology we've covered before. The, the way that redemption works is already well underway by the time we get to um, sanctification. So they also um, clarify here um, how we are sanctified. So the way I summarized it on your, on your handout is um, section one in italics. We are already made alive, and so it is expected that we will grow, which is a breach from sin and death at the core of our being. So growing is the opposite of dying or having been put to death. So because we are sinners by nature since Adam, it goes against what we are by nature in some way for us to be growing. And it reveals that our basic nature has actually changed. We're no longer at our base those who are sinners in Adam. Instead, at our base, we are those who are sons of God, children of God. We are alive in him. And the fact is that we actually have both at work, the flesh and the spirit. Both natures are are at war within us, as we'll uncover in a moment. Um, So how are we sanctified? I have on your handout there John 17, 17, which points us to the work of God. You might think, from the way that some of this is expected, is, is um, described that you are expected to be responsible for your own growth, for your own sanctification. For example, if you read section one in the italics, it is expected that we will grow. That, that feels like a mantle put on you, right? That feels like your responsibility. Oh, I better grow. But what's really the case is that God is still responsible for that. God is still causing that growth. I can... I'll show you that from John 17, 17. So in John 17, we see Jesus' high priestly prayer. So Jesus is praying to the Father, and this sentence comes out in John 17, 17. Jesus to the Father. Sanctify them, referring to people of God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is talking to the Father, asking the Father to sanctify. You see how it's not just you? It's not just us. It's not wholly our responsibility to sanctify ourselves. There's certainly responsibility for us, but God is sanctifying. Jesus asked the Father to sanctify us. So I think this, uh, the reason I'm pausing to emphasize that, I think if you ask a common believer out there, hopefully in reform circles they would have a little better thought process, but if the average American evangelical person goes to church, okay, you say, um, who justifies? God. Who sanctifies? Me. Eh, wrong answer. If you walk away with one thing today, I want you to understand that God is at work sanctifying us. It's the work of who? It's the work of you. You better get to work. No, 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 no. It's the work of God's grace. And, and this language I borrowed from Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
which of course lines up with the confession, and it's across the top of your page. What is sanctification? I borrowed this from the Shorter Catechism. Maybe you saw that. The work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole, Im- whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Enabled. Did you catch it? So it's not up to me and my own ambition, my own energy, my own ability. It's God who is enabling me to do that. First of all, he gives me the will. Second of all, he gives me the energy, ambition, and resources. But um, it is generated by God. He gets all the glory and credit. All right, so from what have we been set free? Uh, We've been set free from um, slavery to sin, from a inability to set ourselves free from sin. Or we could ask it this way, by what means is sanctification developed? Um, by means of the word of God. So again, back to Jesus' words there in John 17, 17. Sanctify them by your word. So God uses the word and spirit dwelling in us to sanctify us. It's not just some mystical thing out there that happens. God, whatever on his timetable, just kind of mystically, you wake up the next morning, hey, I think I'm, I'm more like Jesus. Hey, I think I've grown some overnight. Um, it's not mystical. Instead, it's spiritual that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cause us to grow. That's why church is important. That's why Bible study is important. That's why worship is important. That's why daily Bible reading is important. That's why getting to know, getting to understand, listening carefully is so important because this is the means by which we grow. This is how God causes us to grow. And that's John 17. So if you go back to John 15, you'll see the link that Jesus in John 15 is, is describing fruit, right? The vine and the branches. And if you prune, you will bear more fruit. So the concept is there already in John 15 that if we are united to Christ, and this is, this is huge. I'm going to write this so big. Um, Union with Christ is, is huge in this whole area. And it's seen in uh, John 15, illustrated, the vine and the branches. If we are connected to Christ, we bear fruit. And we get pruned and we bear more fruit. But if you're not connected to Christ... Apart from me, you can do nothing. So the image is there of we need to stay connected to Christ, and if we are, we will grow, and if we're not, we won't grow. So the believer continues to abide in Christ. It's not mystical, you see. It's You grow if you think. You grow if you pray. You grow if you're studying God's Word in Bible studies, classes like this, worship services. It's how we grow. We get reminded, we get deepened in our... Um, understanding of who God is, who we are, how to get through this world. So Jesus emphasized that the equivalent of us abiding in Christ is letting the word of God abide in us. That's not mystical. That's very much an intellectual exercise. We are to think, we are to read, we are to discuss. So the instrument that Christ uses is the Bible. Um, How do I grow? 
with the Word. You want to grow as a Christian? You want to be more like Jesus? Get the Bible at the center of your life and have it again and again and again throughout your week, right? It's, it's a radical breach with sin at the foundation, and so closer we are to the Word, farther you are from sin. My grandpa, he's gone to be with the Lord now, he gave me his old Bible, and he said to me this classic phrase, you've probably heard it before, I'm just going to say it again because I don't want to pass it on. Uh, he said, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And that's spot-on theology. It's what we're saying here today, that if sanctification means putting to death sin, and growth means more like Christ, more holy, then the means that God uses the word will cause you to die to sin. And if you're still in sin, then you're not going to be that eager for the word of God. So it it fits. So a a progressive attack on sin is how Christ builds us. He builds a foundation. He continually confronts you about your wrongs. You get convicted again and again and again, whether it's in a sermon, a class, your own personal reading. God is always on the task of trying to address us about our sin. And that is God at work to sanctify us. Uh, So we have been set free from the body of sin, we could say. Um, Romans 6, 1 to 12. So what I'd like to do is come back to Romans 6 when we, when we come over here. 1 to 12. I'll spend a little more time on that. All right. Um, we are, are capable by his spirit and word of more and more effect, affecting in practice the deliverance that is ours in regeneration. In regeneration... Uh, we have a new birth. We're children of God. If you die that day, you go to heaven. You know, we're completely in the kingdom. The conversion is um, sure and certain, and we believe in perseverance of the saints, so you never lose it. That's surely true. <clears throat> and then, what's ours in, in new birth, what's ours in regeneration, because we are in the family of God, is then made better and better, and made, uh, deepened by um, him working on us. So Paul emphasizes this uh, in Romans 6, and uh, I'll just say a little bit, and then we'll come back to this. It's impossible to deal with the sinfulness of the believer simply by trying to deal with sinfulness. That might sound funny. Let me use an illustration. Say you have a friend who struggles with alcohol. I mean really struggles with alcohol. And so you're thinking maybe rescue mission. You're thinking put them to a a program, um, some kind of special ministry. But ultimately, what that person needs is clarity about sanctification. If, if you say you love Jesus and you're struggling with alcohol at the extent of you're an alcoholic, right? You're drunk is the biblical word, a drunkard. What you're wrestling with is, am I actually in Christ? Because if I'm in Christ, then God is at work in this issue, okay? And if I'm not in Christ then I don't have God working on this issue with me. So everything we deal with, with our own bad habits, uh, the more life-altering, severe bad habits of people, whether they are constantly stealing, somebody hooked on pornography, somebody dealing with alcoholism, those matters crop up here. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Paul in Romans 6 is talking about, you don't just deal with the sinfulness. Listen, when you get the urge, don't drink. That's just not enough. Um, it needs to be also going at what should be in your life 
that's missing that's making you go for the bottle. That sort of thing. So the, the discussion Paul has here in Romans 6 is one of the ways the several lusts, and this is not just sexual lust, it's all the evil desires. Lust is a very generic, bigger umbrella term that refers to all of our evil desires. If you love vanity, if you love money, if you love escaping, over-medicating, whatever it is, lusts, all the sinful things that we approach. One of, one of the things he's listing out there is those several lusts are mortified, which means take a steely knife and kill it until it's dead. Mortification is a radical, violent act that we do against the sinful nature, and we pound it and put it to death. We have to stop those sinful desires and actions. And that we're more and more quickened. There, that, that ancient word quickened, enlivened. We're given energy to go at the, the task of winning the war against my sin nature. I want to put to death my desire to destroy my life with alcohol. I want to put to death the desire to destroy my life with uh, pornography. I want to put to death the desire to destroy, destroy my life with uh, greed. And so God gives us this, the quickening, the strengthening in all these saving graces to rid our house of sin, to rid my life of sin. And one of the best ways to do that is to fill your life with good fruits so there's no room left for sin. There's no time left for pornography. There's no money left for alcohol because you've already used all your money for God and good things. You've already used all your time for good things. So filling our life with good things is another aspect to ridding our lives of the bad things. It's not merely don't drink. There's a whole lot more that the Bible says to the believer if it is a believer, about their struggle with sin and life-dominating sin. Fill your life with good things. You've got to work over here as well as over here. You have to say yes to righteousness as well as death to sin. Die to sin and live to righteousness. Both. That is key for addictions. And I'm not sure Christians understand that. So initial sanctification with a life of sanctification built on it, or another way to say definite sanctification followed by progressive sanctification. Knowing that God is at work and initially um, him converting me and getting on the case, and then in an ongoing way, God continues to be at work in my life. So both. All right, section two. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 13, section two, page 856. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So what, what's happening here, as uh, you'll see on uh, point two of my handout, is sanctification is the flip side of total depravity. Uh, total depravity, if you remember the, the tulip that we talk about um, the acronym T-U-L-I-P, T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, P for perseverance of the saints. The first one, T, is for total depravity. We talk about that in Reformed circles to say that everything about us has been touched by sin. We're not as bad as we could be, otherwise we all would have murdered each other in this room already this morning. We're not as bad as we could be, What total depravity doesn't mean that. Total depravity means that everything is touched by sin. Your emotions aren't right. Your thoughts aren't right. Your actions aren't right. 
Like every aspect, that's what they mean when they say throughout the whole man. So if total depravity touches all of you, my illustration is like you ever do roofing work and you open up a tar can, guaranteed to have the tar on absolutely every piece of clothing you're on. It gets on your boots, it gets on your socks. How did it get on your socks? Your pants never even came up. It's, it's on your socks. It's on your underwear. And how does that happen? It's absolutely everywhere. It's on your hat, your gloves, your car seat. It gets everywhere. Total depravity means sin is everywhere in our lives. And the good news is sanctification is everywhere. God's at work in your emotions, healing you. God's at work in your thoughts, helping you to think correctly. God's at work in us in all these same areas. And that's what I mean when I say sanctification is the flip side of total depravity. In total depravity, we're not as bad, and I'm reading from my handout, we're not as bad as we could be, but there's no part of us untouched by sin. So in sanctification, there's no part of us that's not affected by the work of the Spirit. My thinking, my feeling, my will. My will just means the decision-making center of who I am. And we're talking about that actually in sermon today. Decisions. Um, making decisions, seeking God's guidance, that part of me. Touched by total depravity, cleansed by the Spirit more and more. Praise God. This is so encouraging that he's at work in me. I'm not left to my worst self. Thus, the main point of section two is the word war. War. It's not my word. This is a word in the 1640s written by our forefathers, the Westminster Confession of Faith authors, to say, what is sanctification? It's a battle. It's an all-out war. It's actually one of the most memorable and helpful phrases of the entire Westminster Confession of Faith. This phrase, there abides still some remnants of corruption in every part, from thence arises a continual and irreconcilable war. This is biblical. They're simply picking up Paul's language out of Galatians, where Paul says the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit lusts against the flesh. The imagery that they're using is so biblical. It's straight out of Paul's letters to express how the flesh lusts against the spirit, spirit against the flesh. You understand the word flesh simply means our sin nature, who we were in Adam, who we are by nature apart from Christ before we're converted, the struggle that we still have in us, that sin nature. Why do I, like the whole Romans 7 problem, why do I keep doing what I don't want to do? And I don't do what I do want to do. I stay up late and watch TV, and in the morning I don't do my devotions. Why does that keep happening? I know I want to have my devotions faithfully, and I know I don't want this junk to go in my head before I go to sleep, but I keep doing that. What is going on with me? I can't seem to get my life under control. That whole Romans 7 issue is what he's saying here. There's a war going on inside. You're kind of losing, uh, but you can't ultimately lose. He's saying this is the, the problem. Sanctification is you versus you. You're at war with you, right? You can't blame your friend or spouse or roommate on that one. It's your decision. It's you versus you. So while in section 1... They, call, uh, they talk about God's calling and regeneration, new heart, new spirit. But they're not abstract. The, the new generation, the, the new birth, the, the um, calling from God is not abstract. It's not some ethereal idea out there we can never really get a handle on. It's specific. And it's some of the things that are listed out here in section 2. It's a transformation of the core of the person's entire being. Your entire individual self is being renewed by the Spirit, so it affects every part of you. 
um, the way you feel, the way you think, the way you speak have all been affected by the presence of sin, and now they're affected by the work of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells inside of you, constantly at work in that stuff, polishing stuff, cleaning stuff, changing stuff, drawing attention to stuff. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, so there's no part of me unaffected by sanctification. Um, as long as there's both flesh and spirit, there's bound to be work because they are antithetical to one another. And until the believer is finally perfected, it's inevitable that there be this struggle. So I would say war. Sanctification is war. All right. Then we go to the third section. In which war? Now we're going to specify further. What about that war? So in this war, in which war? Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, you're losing, right? I'm not, not doing so well. I'm supposed to be more holy now than I was a year ago. I'm not doing great. May much prevail. Uh, yet, through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know, let's say you're uh, backslidden. How long has it been since you heard that word? Backslidden. It's from the larger catechism, actually. Backslidden. This is a long-term perspective to encourage all Christians, to encourage shepherds, to encourage spouses, to encourage us as we look across the congregation at those we're especially concerned about. It encourages us to look at the bigger picture and the bigger long-term perspective on the war. This person you're concerned about, whether it be the person in the mirror, or the person next to you, or the person across the church, this person that you're concerned about is in a war. And that person is in a war that we already know the long-term outcome of, if they're in Christ. So the big question is, are they in Christ or not? Right? But the idea that this is a Christian, we're focusing on the idea of a Christian, So it is a Christian. We know the outcome. We know that they're in a war, a war in which what we're told in this passage is the spiritual part overcomes. The saints grow. You can't not grow. It's like a tomato plant. It's either growing or dying. If it dies, shrivels up, turns brown, there's no tomatoes. And if it grows, it gets stronger, taller, bigger, and the red things show up, right? It's a tomato plant producing tomatoes. So in our battle... With sin, if you use an agricultural analogy, it's growth, fruitfulness. If you use a military analogy, it's, it's um, battles with victory at the end. There may be times, and this is so helpful, this third paragraph, there are times when it looks like you're losing. You may not even be a Christian. You're wondering if that person's a Christian. There are times like that. Mama said there'd be days like that. The Westminster Divine said there'd be days like that. This is admitted up front. We know this going in. In our battle, there may be times when sin seems to have recovered its earlier ground in him or her. We're so discouraged. They fell again. What word do we use for get back on the wagon or alcoholism? uh, A relapse. I was trying to think of the word relapse. Uh, Hebrews 12, there's a sin that clings so closely that a Christian could fear they've been overcome by sin again. Although that takes place, Rest assured of this truth. The victory that actually belongs to that believer 
in Christ Jesus by virtue of his death and resurrection will show itself to be true. God is not done yet. It looks to us like it's over failure. God is on the move. He's always at work in his time, in his grace, in his mercy, in his way. So you've got to look at the whole war. At the end of the day, God wins. So there may be times or battles in which that, viewed in the life of that person. If you're a parent, you know this about your children. If you're a grandparent, you're thinking grandchildren. Your friends, right? You knew that person two decades ago, and they were on fire. And now, they don't go anywhere to worship. There's times in which, it viewed exclusively in a snapshot of that moment, it looks like it's um, lost. The army lost the war. But the fact is, that person's truly in Christ. If that person is converted, they've been given the new birth, and they're at war, they've simply been badly damaged in some battles. One wound is not the end of the entire war. So um, that's what I think is, is helpful. All right, so I have 10 minutes left. We've covered these three. And what I want to do is go to the bottom of your page where we have Westminster Larger Catechism 77. Um, we don't have that in your hymnal, so I put the whole question there on the bottom of your page. Admittedly in small print, but it's there. The difference between justification and sanctification. So first I'd like to um, read this, and then I'd like to go to um, Romans 6, 1 to 12, and spend the rest of our, our 10 minutes talking about that passage, which um, shows more clearly the two aspects of sanctification, definitive and progressive, okay? And it helps to clarify the difference between justification and sanctification to see the two aspects of sanctification. So first let me read it. Westminster Larger Catechism 77. Wherein, or how do, justification and sanctification differ? Answer. Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification, imputeth or deposits the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace, means provides, and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. The one doth equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation, the other is neither equal in all nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. So I hope you follow that. And maybe it's something for you to take in this afternoon when you can think, through, wait, this, this, the other, this, the other. They're trying to specify the difference between justification and, and sanctification. Um, I think one, one way that sheds a lot of light or clarifies, maybe it's a little easier to digest quickly, is the sentence above that on your handout a quote from a a pastor, a Puritan, John Owen. He said that there's only two problems for shepherding work of pastors and elders in dealing with Christians and dealing with church members. Two problems, only two problems. Well, that's kind of nice. There's only two problems. I thought there were dozens of problems, but there's only two. Uh, Number one, persuading those under the dominion of sin that they really are under the dominion of sin. Like, you're stuck. You can't help yourself. In other words, the work of evangelism. Right, someone who doesn't know Christ. I can quit any time you want. Oh, no, you can't. You're stuck. You're totally stuck. House of slavery, house of sin. Convincing those under the dominion of sin they really are under the dominion of sin. The second problem is 
persuading those who are not under the dominion of sin that they are not. You need to knock it off. You need to stop now because you can, because you're alive in Christ, because you have him, his word, and his spirit, because he's at work. He's not going to let you continue down this road. You need to stop it. Uh, Stop it now. So interesting. I think that helps us to, uh, to clarify our thinking about justification and sanctification. So if you go to Romans 6 um, now, and um, I, I first want to introduce this little talk on Romans 6, 1 to 12 by um, reading a quote from a Lutheran scholar. So I know this is heavily Lutheran and Catholic area here, right, in Wisconsin. And some of you come from Lutheran churches, which is fine. But there's a distinction here, and I'm not trying to run anybody down, just being clear about what we believe our position is over against a different position. And we've been talking all day about sanctification. So what do the Lutherans say about sanctification? What do the Lutherans say about justification and sanctification being distinguished? We're saying that they're together in Christ. When you have union with Christ, you have both. But we're saying that they're different. But listen to this from a Lutheran scholar, Gerhard Ford. He wrote an essay called The Lutheran View, in a work entitled Christian Spirituality where he mapped out five views of sanctification. And he says this, quote, Sanctification, if it is to be spoken of as something other than justification, is perhaps best defined as the art of getting used to the unconditional justification wrought by the grace of God for Jesus' sake. End quote. Now, if I read that to you at the top of the hour, you may or may not be able to distinguish the error, but hopefully after I've run my mouth off up here and we've thought carefully about sanctification, you're detecting something off about what the Lutheran scholar wrote. In fact, he goes on to write, quote, it is not something added to justification, it is the justified life. Um, And he later wrote, talk about sanctification is dangerous, end quote. Why would it be dangerous? This is one of my favorite topics. So encouraging. And we need it for clarity on how to deal with our friends who are stuck in sin, how to do evangelism, how to to do shepherding, how to govern our own lives. So in the Reformed view, as over against the Lutheran view, we believe it does not go far enough to say that sanctification is inevitably joined to justification. Yeah, that's true. When we have union with Christ, we have both. Okay, got that. But it doesn't go far enough. We need to clarify now. They are two indissolubly linked as one act of being raised in Christ, but it does not undermine the distinction between justification and sanctification. So the difference is... That justification is an act of God in which we are once for all declared righteous before heaven. But sanctification is a work of God, an ongoing work of God. He's continually working at us, giving us grace. And yet within sanctification, there's two aspects, definitive and progressive. So let's read um, Romans 6 and try to unpack those, um, those two aspects of definitive and progressive. So Romans 6. What then shall, what shall we then? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so I'll stop there. So the opening observation that Paul's making, you know, and this follows on a whole um, stream of thinking. Romans 5, 12 to 21 is a whole huge, helpful stream of thinking. So he's following that series, the, the context for discussion of, of Romans 5, 12 to 21, which we could summarize as simply saying, just as we were co-implicated with the first Adam at the time of his guilt and condemnation, so also we are co-implicated with Christ, the second Adam, at the point of his death and resurrection. I am dead to sin in Christ, right? So if I am guilty as soon as Adam ate the fruit and dead in sin, I'm also dead when God judges Christ for my sins. I'm dead in Christ, right? I'm implicated in the first Adam, and I'm implicated in the second Adam. But what happened then? Praise God, without the resurrection, we got nothing. Jesus rose from the dead, and so now I'm not co-implicated. I am co-exonerated. That he has no sin, so he's raised from the dead because death can't keep him. But I'm in him. I'm united to him by faith. So when he rises without any condemnation, I also rise without any condemnation. That's the definitive sanctification. You already have, in Christ, been declared holy. So then he could say in verse 2, how can he who died to sin still live in it? Died to sin is the definitive sanctification part. How can you who's already dead to sin go after it again? (laughs) Right? You already brushed the dog's teeth and then they want to eat some more dog food. (laughs) What is up with that? You're, You're already dead to sin. Why would you go after sin anymore? Um... So you used to see the background of, of Romans 5, 12 to 21. And so he's saying we're identified with Christ in his past historical crucifixion, but also in his resurrection. And so it bears decisively on our present personal identification with Christ in his death and our personal identification with Christ in his resurrection. So uh, verses 2 through 4 here, um, you can no longer in our present experience live in sin because we've died to it as a controlling reality by being raised to walk in newness of life. So I read verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, you know, symbolically showing how we are united to him, baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's your progressive, continuously walk in, peripateo, and it's the same word Paul uses at the beginning and the end of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. That, that passage about I used to walk in sin, but then God has mercy on us. I'm alive in Christ, so at the end I walk in um, good behavior and holiness. So I'm already dead to sin, and then I progressively walk in newness of life. So I'm out of time. (laughs) Yeah. So why don't I do this? I'll read verses uh, 5 through 12, because that's the remainder of the passage. 
I'll say a few words and close in prayer because I should stop. But um, I just wanted to at least present this passage as a whole. So verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, like all of us, right? And, and once for all of time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Summary statement, verse 12, so important. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So it's what we call um, indicative, imperative, because of the status, what should be done. Um, Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in um, Christ Jesus. Through union with Christ, in the likeness of his death and resurrection, the believer both dies to sin and rises to new life. So what, what do we do with this? If we are raised uh, together with Christ, we are seeking the things that are above. Um, there's a relationship between the ground of who we are and the behavior that's expected of us. Um, so it ought to be tremendously motivating for us to put sin to death and stop it. And also encouraging to us that it's all built on the work of God.